Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is somebody who became dependent on opiates following an acute illness for which he was prescribed them as a painkiller. When his doctor explained to him that he was dependent on the opiates and that it wasn't his fault, that was a turning point after which he made a complete recovery and went on to become an international expert on the issue of opiate addiction, writing the book Addiction Nation. My guest on the podcast today is Timothy McMahon King. You're very, very welcome to the show, Tim. I'm honored to be speaking with you today. And I want to read some facts to you because that may be a good place for us to start the conversation. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in the United States this year, 48,000 people will die from the overuse of synthetic opioids. 50,000 people will use heroin for the first time. A quarter of a million people use heroin in the past year. And 1.6 million people misuse prescription painkillers for the first time. These are shocking figures. Is that your impression? Yes. And when you look at it in an even broader lens, you see the first thing to learn about the opioid crisis is it's not just about opioids. What we have is an overdose crisis. And some of the latest projections for 2020, we still don't have all the data in, is that overdoses as a whole could reach anywhere from 85,000 with some advocates actually saying it could be as high as 100,000 with things just being so much worse after people have spent a year in isolation because of the pandemic. Those are shocking numbers by any measure. I want to start with your story. You are, by your own admission, or have been an, an opiate addict. How did that come about? So my story, not uncommon. I had a severe illness. Lots of your listeners are in the medical profession, so it was pancreatitis. But I was 25 at the time, and the doctors weren't sure why a 25-year-old who is otherwise healthy would develop pancreatitis. Well, they found out later that I had some, uh, probably a small gallstone that got caught in one of my ducts, created some irritation, but they didn't know that at the time. So they went in and performed an ERCP, so a procedure to check out what was going on with my pancreas. It didn't go well. Instead, the pancreas got more agitated, and I went from a mild case of pancreatitis to acute necrotizing pancreatitis, which pancreas is eating itself. I'm going into acute respiratory distress. I'm in the ICU. The doctors are telling my family to come in and say goodbye because this might be the last time you get to see them. And of course, they put me on heavy doses of pain medication. And I had a nice little button, a PCA, where I could push that every 15 minutes and get the relief that I desperately needed. But something else happened while I was in the hospital. First, I recovered, which was thrilled thrilled to have that happen and make it out alive. But the other thing is I kept having different complications. And so along the way, I had doctor after doctor say, we don't see anything wrong with you you must be faking your pain to get more pain medicine. And so I was in such a defensive mode. And each time, they, it turns out they had missed something that was causing pain. But by the time I was actually sent home, 
I was in a position where I was just going to defend my pain medicine usage to, you know, I would fight with any doctor who would even mention taking it away from me because it had happened before. And I felt like I wasn't being trusted. I felt like I wasn't being believed. And that put me into a defensive position. And so when I went home, you know, now for me, it's not just the pain relief, but the opioids were the thing that I turned to in the hospital to make me feel stable again. And when I felt anxious, that's what I would turn to. And so by the time I was home, I was trained to associate this not just with physical pain, but with all of the stuff that I was grappling with of having been just previously a young, healthy 25-year-old who was running every day, working long hours, excited about my job. And suddenly all of that was put on hold. And I was trying to work through a lot of these things. And without realizing it, I was now turning to that pain medication, not just for pain in my stomach, but to help with all of those things. And that's when I moved from kind of the opioid dependence that would have, of course, happened to anyone just by being on opioids that long to an addiction where I was starting to use compulsively. I was starting to use a lot more than I was prescribed and in a way that I no longer felt I was in control of. You're describing a situation that sounds very familiar. And I speak as a doctor who understands how we end up prescribing opiates. In fact, we have to be fair. Opiates are very good medication. They take pain away when you need them. They are very, very helpful. But you're describing a scenario that's almost like the eye of a storm, where you get somebody who's got increasing pain. You're trying to do the right thing by taking the pain away but you're creating a monstrous problem for them in the longer term. How do you think we could have avoided this in the first place? Well, this is where I think my story is actually a success story. So what happened for me is what I would hope happens for every person in that situation. And what motivated me to write the book was not how bad my situation got, But that I looked around, and I'm from the state of New Hampshire, and in New Hampshire, if you look at all 50 states in the U.S., have typically been in the top three for per capita overdose rate. So years after this happened, I moved back to New Hampshire, and I'm hearing all these stories. And I'm hearing about people who are in my graduating class who are dying. I'm hearing about people down the road who are taking in foster kids who their parents have an addiction. I'm hearing about all of this, and I suddenly realized that could have been me if my doctor hadn't done what was right. And so I'm out of the hospital now for a few months. I was sent home. I had a pick line in my arm. I couldn't eat anything, so I'm hooking up for 12 hours a day to a pump to get all my nutrition. At the same time, my stomach keeps hurting. And in retrospect, that was probably gastric paresis, where I was taking so many opioids My system was shutting down. And so when I did try to take on more liquid by mouth or any soft foods by mouth, I was experiencing intense pain. And so I would take more pain medicine and it would feed this cycle. And I go in for a routine checkup with my pancreatic specialist. And he sat me down, he looked at my chart, looked at my prescriptions, and he saw what was happening. And now what is typically the case and that I hear now time and time again is at that point in the story, 
The doctor gets upset. The doctor gets angry with the patient or dismissive or starts talking down to them and gives them quick taper two weeks, maybe three weeks to come down off the pain medication because they think that person's addicted. And what my doctor did was completely different. He sat me down. My mom was in the room. She had come down from New Hampshire to be there with me. She's a nurse. So we've been talking through all of my, all of my case. So sit there together. He looks me straight in the eye and goes, Tim, I think you're addicted to your pain medicine. And immediately my body tenses up and I can feel my blood pressure rising. And I have a whole list of excuses. I have a whole list of reasons why I'm not addicted. And he looks at me and he just goes, and I don't think you did anything wrong. You're not in trouble. Just don't, you just, you can relax. And so I do, because I have in my head, right? I should have known better. I still have in my head this idea that the only people who would get addicted are bad people. And even though I knew better than that, it was still so deeply ingrained in me that when I heard you're addicted, what I heard is you're a bad person. You did something wrong. You are lying. You are manipulative. And I project all those stereotypes into myself. And of course, what would you do if someone projected all those stereotypes on you? You would fight them about it. You would want to prove that you're a good person. You would want to prove that you need the pain medicine. But when he told me that, I relaxed. And the next thing he said was so important. He goes, and I believe you're still in pain. So now he's disarmed me from that feeling of I'm a bad person. And now he's disarmed me from some need to prove that I'm in pain to him to keep getting a prescription. And so we, he disarms me in those ways. And then he asked me what I would never expect a pancreatic specialist to ask. He goes, so Tim, what are your goals in life? Where do you see yourself in five years? And I start opening up and I talk to him about the fact that you know, I, I want to write a book someday, and I'm, I'm working for this nonprofit in Washington, D.C., and we're advocating on these issues that I care about, and I, I want to see this work grow, and I want to be more involved in it. And he just lets me go on for five minutes talking about my life goals. And then he says, great. So, Tim, when you imagine yourself in five years, do you think you'll still be on pain medicine, or do you think you'll be off of it by then? I said, well, I'll be off of it, of course. And he goes, Great. So you've got a lot you want to accomplish. It doesn't involve being on pain medicine. So we're on the same page. How do we achieve these goals together? What do you need to achieve that goal of getting off your pain medicine that we we both want? And then we put together a plan. And it never felt like he was directing me. It didn't feel like he was giving me some moral ultimatum. It didn't feel like he was trying to control me. It felt like he was there as a partner. And he drew out of me my own desire to not be on pain medicine for the rest of my life. And then it it involves some cognitive behavioral therapy and a little bit of um, alternative pain management. And over the course, and some trust from him, because I kept, I was on opioids for another three months after that. It was not a quick taper. He did not push me for a specific timeline, but he just said, Tim, can you promise me that you'll take less when you can? And I did. Now, that might not be a universal solution, but that was what worked for me. And I look back with so much gratitude for that doctor who had a whole other line of patients behind me, didn't budget for that time, but he sat down and with empathy and compassion, drew out of me my own desire to not be on opioids 
not be addicted to them. You're describing a master of the art of doctoring, no question about it. Somebody who sees the patient in the context of the life that they bring into that room. And that often is missing in our interactions with patients, largely because there's no time or whatever else, but unfortunately also because of our prejudices. And you hint at that. You say that in the mind of the person who is finding themselves on this roller coaster ride along with the patient, they're thinking, this chap, this lady, does not want to be off these things. It's their fault. They are making up all of these symptoms. How do you think we can address that from the other side of the desk, from the doctor's side of the desk? How do we, how do we overcome our anger at the patient? Because we ourselves are feeling very uncomfortable. We're signing these prescriptions and we're thinking, I'm not happy about this. I'm just, I'm just giving this guy medication he shouldn't have. Yeah, and it's a difficult position to be in because if you're practicing medicine, likelihood is you have been lied to at some point. You have had somebody be aggressive in demanding a particular pre- prescription. You have had someone be rude or insult you in the process of all of this. But it is important to know that whatever kind of vision or negative stereotypes we've had about people with a substance use disorder, those who are addicted, the person who has had worse thoughts about themselves is the person in that situation. Chances are they have wrestled with those things inside of thinking of themselves in a negative way. You don't need to pile on because that's already a track that is playing inside of their brain. And what I didn't realize, so in the process of writing my book, I got to sit down with Dr. William Miller, who's one of the world's leading addiction experts and also the co-founder of Motivational Interviewing. And I sat down and in my interview process, described to him this conversation with my doctor, and he just smiled knowingly. And of course, when I read all about motivational interviewing, I realized that that's what my doctor had been trained in. And motivational interviewing, you know, at its core, some of your listeners might be familiar with it, but to give kind of some of the basics is it's like a a marriage between the Eric Erickson style, person-centered, client-centered therapy, and the more Pavlovian cognitive behavioral therapy. Let's look at the data that kind of, and even in Miller's career, he kind of had this weird intersection of those two families of, of psychology and started to see the overlap. And he realized that whenever anyone's taught, like when you're dealing with some sort of problematic behavior, normally the person in front of you feels ambivalence. And that means they are already in a process of feeling that tension between how they're, like, how, what they're actually doing, their actions they're taking and how they feel about those actions and what they want those actions to be. And if you press on the don't do opioids side, the most common reaction is for that person to think about more reasons why they should keep doing opioids. And so by pushing against them in that way, you're actually pushing them deeper into that addiction as opposed to helping them out of it. And motivational interviewing is where you're trying to position yourself not as the director of change, but as a knowledgeable guide that works with that person in the midst of their own desire to change. 
And it's about identifying language they might use that is either about sustaining that behavior or changing that behavior. And when you hear the language of change, or if you can evoke the language of change, that's where you step in. And as my doctor said, he heard my desire. He was able to evoke language of change for me by referencing a future self. And then when he heard that change language, he was able to step in and say, I want to be a partner with you in what you already want to do. Because punishment and consequences can control behavior, but it's one of the weakest forms of control because as soon as that person feels outside of those consequences or they're in a position where for them, even temporarily, it's they feel like there's more benefit to continuing that action than a negative consequence, they're going to go right back. But it's that intrinsic motivation that if we can tap into that, if we can tap into someone's own desire to change, that is the sustaining part. That is what kept, helps people in the long run, is discovering their own motivation, not being told what to do. That makes sense on all kinds of levels. You're right. The best guide is yourself. And if you can get that guide armed and ready to go, then you are going to certainly get change happening. What proportion of people do you think who are currently addicted to opioids are at the point where they would respond like you did? They would say, I don't see this as being part of my future and I want to do something about it. Can you help me? What proportion do you think that is? So I don't think I have good numbers on like specific proportions, but I will say that one thing I am hoping for in the field of addiction studies is it still feels like if you were to go to an oncologist and you have cancer and they would say, you have cancer? Great. We have radiation treatment. Radiation treatment didn't work. Sorry, you're a lost cause. And you know, so much right now, and this is, I appreciate the AA's 12-step tradition, and there's a lot of good, good pieces of that, but there's still that mindset of all we have is AA, and if AA doesn't work, then something's wrong with you. And we do need to start looking at that differently of saying, all right, what might be the mix? Maybe this is a person who was traumatized by religion early in their life, and they don't want to talk about a higher power they would better fit with smart recovery or they're perfect for motivational interviewing or cognitive behavioral therapy or medically assisted treatment or some sort of combination of these things. The AA or the, you know, here's your 40-day or 30-day inpatient treatment system is such a limited rubric and especially for non-dominant populations. So if you're looking at indigenous peoples and oftentimes even women, they have found that AA doesn't work as well. Because for me, I'm white, middle-class, straight male who grew up in a good home. There was a really, like, I did not go to AA, but I really resonated with that first step of admitting some powerlessness. That was an important spiritual thing for me to experience of letting go and saying, I am not in control. If you've got somebody in their life who they have a history of abuse, they have a history of trauma, it might not be the first thing they need to hear is, you're not in control, they might need to hear you are more powerful than you realize. And so one of the reasons why I go to motivational interviewing so often is it is the kind of practice that you don't need a degree in, in order to incorporate some of the principles 
of motivational interviewing into any kind of practice that you are doing. And that's uh, one place that I would go because it often, there's additional research now, just had a follow-up conversation with Dr. Miller of motivational interviewing might work best when used in conjunction with another approach, as opposed to it just being the only approach. But one of the things that he also pointed out was they, he did, he was a part of a big multi-site study where they were looking at a handful of different evidence-based approaches to address addiction. And this was supposed to be the largest study to date to determine which approach was most effective. And he said, at first, they were a little disappointed with the data because it didn't seem that there was any one standout approach. They were all doing about the same. But when you looked inside the approach, there was actually a huge variance of efficacy based on the practitioner. And the only causal effect they could find for that, they could determine, was the empathy rating the counselor received while they were participating in the study. So it's not that all approaches are created equal, but once you get to a certain point, one of the biggest factors of whether or not you will have efficacy in addressing addiction is not the methodology you choose, but how you are applying that methodology. And that compassion, that empathy is so important because people who are in that situation are just highly tuned for any sense of being judged, any sense of being condemned, any sense of being looked down upon. And if you as a practitioner are able to maintain that stance of that compassion, that is going to make such a huge difference for the person you're working with. I see that. And hearing your story, I would struggle to think of anyone who would not feel compassion for the person who's sitting there with this problem. If they imagine that it's you that's sitting there, somebody who had pancreatitis, somebody who had this, and we know the complications of pancreatitis, you're right, they're horrendous. You know, necrotizing pancreatitis is no fun and it causes a lot of pain. You could not put yourself in a position where you're thinking negative thoughts about somebody who happens to have become dependent on an opiate to get away from that agony. No doubt about it. Now the question is, how do you get them off it? And you're right. You provided a really nice pen picture of all of the options that are available to us. But of course, the key thing here is not to have you in that position in the first place and therefore being very careful about prescribing these kind of drugs. Because as you say, they not only take away the pain, they also take away the stress, the distress, the discomfort the other things in your life which are problematic and seem to go away when you're taking drugs like these. What's your take on that? So in my situation personally, I don't think the doctors could have done anything differently. But there are a lot of circumstances where we do have a system that, especially in the United States, that makes it so much cheaper and so much easier to go to an opioid for pain management than to go to physical therapy. And that's where I had an arm injury this year. And even with pretty good insurance, right, I had, you know, probably $800 out of pocket to go to physical therapy over the course of eight weeks. 
Now, it would have been a lot cheaper. I probably would have been paying $5 a bottle just to take some Vicodin to make that pain go away. And so we do have a perverse incentive system that these holistic approaches are so much more expensive than writing a prescription and handing that over. And so the United States is going to be a particularly pl- a particular place where that, that kind of cycle is pernicious as our medical system is uh, out of the all industrialized nations is pretty messed up. But that sort of, you know, it's so rare to find doctors who can sit down and, as you said, see the whole person in their context and also be able to ask questions like, is a part of this pain loneliness? You've got a factory worker in Detroit who really has messed up their back by years of physical labor, and now they can't work anymore, and they're sitting at home, and they feel isolated, they feel alone. This job that had previously given them meaning as, a, as someone who you know, was able to earn for themselves and for their family is now gone, and now they're sitting at home in constant pain all day, and they don't have anything to distract them from that because we know pain can be real, but how we experience that pain is dramatically shifted by our mindset, or it's dramatically shifted by whether or not we're thinking about other things. But what does it take to get that person to show up at their doctors and not get them just to write a script, but to say, what else do you need in your life? Because watching cable television is just going to make you feel angry and isolated and alone, and you're just going to be focused on that pain more and more. And that was you know, another piece for me was I was coming out and I was alone almost all day, every day. And in my mind, my mom was begging me to move back to New Hampshire to my childhood home so that I could be looked after and taken care of. And in my mind, that was failure. That was, if I move back, then that means I am going to be out of this for longer. Like I kept wanting to think I will be back at my job in the next two weeks. And it ended up being four or five months that I was still out of work, in part because I was too proud to go back home. And that is deep insight that you can't figure out for a patient in just a couple minutes. But part of my challenge was I was alone all day thinking of nothing other than the pain I was still experiencing. And that's, you know, pain is hard to measure, but that's, that was the reality of my experience. And if I had been told that I was faking, the, <laughs> again, the, the result would not have been me saying, oh, yeah, you're probably right. I'm just fixated on my pain. It would have been fixating on my pain even more to prove that doctor wrong. Tim, you are thoughtful, you're compassionate, you're articulate. We have a global crisis. We need to do something now. You offer a road to recovery, not just for yourself, but for all those who find themselves in this position. It's been an honor speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.